Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers. Thank you for joining me today. We are talking to Mark Sullivan. He is the number one best-selling author of 18 novels, including Beneath a Scarlet Sky, which has been published in 37 languages and is being developed as a seven-part limited series. So we talk about that in the interview, but we also talk about his new book, which comes out May 4th, and that's called The Last Green Valley. It seems like an amazing book, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation I had with Mark. So without further ado, here's Mark Sullivan. Mark, thank you for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Allison. A few years ago, you released your runaway best-selling historical debut, Beneath a Scarlet Sky. Your second historical novel, The Last Green Valley, releases May 4th. Can you tell me about this book? Yeah. When I published Beneath a Scarlet Sky, there was a lot of people who were telling me I would never find another story like Pino Lellis. And I honestly believed I would. And sure enough, all these different story ideas started coming out of the woodwork, people emailing me or mailing me letters about their grandfather or their aunt or what have you. And I realized really quick I was going to need some kind of filter, some way to decide what was the next book. And I went back and thought a lot about Beneath and why it has touched so many people around the world. And I came down to four words that it's moving, inspiring, healing, and potentially transforming to readers. And so those four words became my filter. And I went back and looked at everything I'd gotten, and there were some that were so close. They were really good stories, but they didn't meet all the criteria. And then I was, um, at, of all places, at the Noontime Rotary meeting in Bozeman, Montana, where I live. And uh, after my presentation about Beneath, a uh, retired dentist comes up and says, do you know the Martells? And I said, you mean like the construction people because they own a big commercial and residential construction company here in Montana. And mm-hmm. he said, yeah. He said, the entire time I read your book, all I could think about was the story of how they came to America. You really need to go hear it. So a couple of days later, I type in Bill Martell's address and it's like two miles from my house, which surprised me. And then I was told to take a left into this older neighborhood and I get this strange feeling and I'm not quite sure why. And then I get to Bill's driveway and I realize I can't be 200, 250 yards from where I heard Pino Lella's story. Um, so I oh. was incredibly intrigued at that point. So I go inside, Bill tells me the first 10 minutes of the story and I'm sitting forward in my chair, which is a good sign. And an hour into it, I know I'm telling it. And uh, it's the story of this young family in Ukraine in the spring of 1944. Stalin is counterattacking, and then the Germans have offered to protect them and take them back to Germany because Heinrich Himmler believes that these ethnic German families that lived in Ukraine for over 100 years were the last pure Aryan blood on earth. And Mm -hmm. I was just incredibly uh, wowed by the story because 
the more I dug into it when I went to Ukraine and then followed their trail, uh, they basically rode in a Conestoga wagon, two horses, whatever they could pack in the wagon, two kids, and they're being chased by the Red Army and the German armies out in front of them. And what happens is just simply extraordinary. It's one of the greatest stories of resilience and overcoming hardship I've ever heard. Wow, that's inspiring. So can you tell me more about how you dug into this story and found out more about it? You mentioned you went to the Ukraine. Yes. Tell me about your research process. Yes. So um, I believe in the power of guides. I always try to hire great guides wherever I'm going. And Mm. it really helps if they have some kind of journalism background, which I do, because then we speak the same language. And um, I found one. I started uh, about seven-eighths of the way on the uh, on the trip at the border of Moldova and Romania and was able to track them all the way through to Hungary, north into Poland, and then eventually into Germany, and then eventually into the British sector uh, of uh, controlled Europe. And then I was blessed to be able to go to Ukraine with uh, Bill and his older brother, Walter, And um, we were able to track down the ruins of the farmhouse that they leave right at the beginning of the book. And for these guys to be with them and to see them looking into the cellar and the roots, the root cellar that their father built and this well that they remembered distinctly um, and to see the whole arc of their life play out before them was just remarkable. One of the most moving scenes I've ever been involved with. And, you know, we were able to also, uh, that to get there, we had to go up this horrendous road, uh, about eight hours, one of the worst roads I've been on. And that's saying something, because I've been a lot of places in rough conditions. And um, then I wanted to take them to this prisoner of war camp, this gulag that uh, Mr. Martel was sent to, uh, after he was captured in Poland. And mm. that was 13 hours up a bad road. So I, I didn't think I could do it to these guys who were 79 and 81 at the time. So I chartered a plane and we flew to a town near the border of Belarus called Poltava, which was where their father was held. Poltava was almost completely destroyed by the Allies uh, in bombardments because the Germans had been using it to launch attacks deeper into um, the Soviet Union. And the idea was that 2,300 prisoners were going to rebuild a city of 300,000, which is preposterous to begin with. Mm. But it made it worse when there was really no facilities for them. And the 2,300 prisoners go into the camp. Uh, Mr. Martel ends up living or sleeping at night in the basement of a bombed out museum. And he is working to rebuild the hospital. Uh, We found the museum. When we got there, it was closed, which we were really bummed out about. But then we found the museum director. And he said, you know, they were doing uh, a bunch of work inside and we couldn't go in until he found out that Mr. Martel used to gather scraps of lumber from the hospital site and sell them to the cooks for the prisoner of war camp. And it turned out that one of the cooks was the museum director's mother. And so he 
broke all the rules and took us on a guided tour <laughs> of the museum, including a trip into the basement where Mr. Martell had lived with 600 men. Wow. And, uh, it was just to see and to be with the brothers when they confronted what their father had had to endure and to understand that 2,300 men had gone into this camp. And when Mr. Martell escapes in this absolutely daring move, uh, there were only 199 left. So he's going to die. The place was just riddled with disease, and he had somehow miraculously survived to the point of his escape. But going there, meeting the museum director, hearing him confirm much of what uh, the brothers had told me and what Emil had told me through recordings that were made by their daughter um, of both mm-hmm. Emil and Adeline, I was able to thread the story together. Wow. Now, you mentioned in your note in the beginning of the book that, you know, you had to fill in details with mm-hmm. your own imagination. So right. um, how how did you decide what to fabricate and and how did the family respond to um because you're using their mm-hmm. names the yeah. the real names of the people yeah. and kind of adding to their story did, sure. how do they feel about that uh they love the story they thought i did a great awesome job. Um, great i was very happy about that you know the biggest thing i had to deal with is that prior to going to the gulag uh emil martel is a very um He's just an, not an uninteresting person. He's the kind of person who tries not to get noticed because he grew up under Stalinism. And he understands mm. that if you're good at something or if you aspire to be better at something, you're probably going to be sent to Siberia, which mm. was what happened to his father and is what happened to Adeline's father. Um, Adeline's father never came back. Emil's father came back, just incredibly damaged soul. So... You know, again, prior to him being sent there, he's he's a, a timid person in a lot of ways. He's got a lot of bravery in him, but in terms of standing up for himself and being more, he's timid. And something happens to him in that camp. Uh, there's no doubt about it because he comes out a different person. Uh, you know, in his escape and his subsequent long solo trip across Eastern Europe to get back to try to find his wife and children – he, he starts acting like James Bond in a sense. I mean, he's he's <laughs> pulling every risk, uh, doing everything he would not have done before. And and this carries through the rest of his life. When he gets to Montana, um, he sees opportunity at every turn and he takes massive risks. And literally everything the family turns touches turns to gold. So wow. they didn't know what the transformation was. Uh, and they said, you're going to have to come up with it. And I believe in the power of serendipity. So when I was in the town of Barlad, Romania, which is right on the border uh, with Moldova, and the Martels passed through there with the big caravan of the Lost Trek, about 100 to 120,000 ethnic Germans who were being protected by the Nazis. Um, I found a man who was at the time 97 years old, and he remembered the Trek. He had been there at the border. And he'd remember talking to them. And he was also one of the more enlightened people I've ever met. Um, there's a character in the book called the beekeeper. And uh, it's largely based on uh, Georgi Vasulescu, uh, who just turned a hundred and uh, was 
celebrated in Romania because he was one of the last survivors of Stalingrad. Wow. So I want to talk a little bit about your career. You've, you mentioned that you were a journalist. You've had quite a career. Um, but I, I was told that um, some professional failure and personal loss ended up leading to your success. Um, can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. With Beneath the Starless Sky um, in February of 2006, I'd already written about 16 novels and I'd also been mm-hmm. blessed to and at that point, I was not yet writing with James Patterson. Um, and I would say that my uh, success at that point was mixed. And um, it got to the point where uh, my little brother, who was also my best friend at the time, uh, had drunk himself to death. A book uh-huh. that I really loved had bombed in the United States. And my wife and I were in this ongoing business dispute that had put it put us at the point of personal bankruptcy. And I realized that driving down a snowy highway in Montana uh, in that February on a Saturday afternoon, that I was worth more dead than alive. And I considered driving into a bridge Mm. apartment um, so my wife could collect on the insurance. But I love my wife. I love my kids. Uh, I didn't do it, but I got to the Costco parking lot as rattled as I've ever been in my life. And I put my head on the steering wheel and I, Begged the universe for a story, something that mm. would give me purpose. And I go home. My wife has no idea that I've reached, you know, the low point in my life. She knows I'm depressed, but she doesn't understand where I am mentally. And she says, you have to go to uh, some friends of ours for dinner tonight because uh, she wasn't feeling well. And I said, I'm not going to any dinner. And she said, you have to. We've turned them down three times. Just go. And if, if you're not feeling it, excuse yourself after an hour. So I go and 20 minutes into the dinner party, a perfect stranger starts telling me the story of Pino Lella. And I'm like, what? You know, uh, I was hugely skeptical at first because I was like, we would have heard a story about a 17 year old boy who led Jews escaping Nazi occupied Italy. And then through a series of remarkable circumstances becomes a spy inside the German high command. But the guy said, well, no, I think he's alive. And I said, alive? You know, how old is he? He's 78, 79 at the time. So I get on the phone the next day and I talk to his son, uh, Pino's son. And then I get Pino in Italy and I tell him I want to come. And he said, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, because you're a hero. And he said, no, I'm more of a coward. And now my all my story senses are up, you know. It's like mm, there's yeah. something to this. And uh, six weeks later, I get off a plane in Milan, big strapping guy waiting for me, takes me out into this little Citroën de Chevaux and proceeds to drive it like a Ferrari through the streets of Italy. Just an absolutely brilliant driver, which became fundamental to understanding who he was in the course of the story. But Mm -hmm. I spent three weeks with him and Hearing his story, my own personal problems just got smaller and smaller and smaller. And by the end of it, his philosophy on life and his understanding of tragedy and grief had changed me at a very fundamental level. And I went back to the United States a different person and vowing to tell his story. Uh, I didn't realize it would take me almost a decade to put it together. Um but I did. It was my passion project for almost 10 years while I returned to writing books and then subsequently 
um, partnered with James Patterson, which was an, an incredible miracle for me. And wow. uh, I've been going ever since. That's wonderful. I You mentioned that your personal problems just kind of faded away as you were listening to his story. So is that part of what you want readers to get from both Beneath the Scarlet Sky and The Last Green Valley? What is your hope that will be, what'll be the takeaway for them? I think I hope the takeaway is that they understand that human beings are far more capable than we give them credit for, that they can overcome just remarkable and brutal circumstances to triumph. Mm-hmm. It's certainly the story of Pinolella, and it's certainly the story of the Martells. My oldest son, who's also a novelist, um, when he read the book for the first time, which was last year during the pandemic, uh, he said, you know, I, I just got a totally different appreciation for what I was going through, that all I was really being asked to do was to stay home and wear a mask when I went outside and watch a bunch of Netflix. And, you know, when you compare that to what the Martells went through, uh, it's just like, come on, give me a break. I've got nothing to complain about. And you also get a deep appreciation for the power of faith and resilience, because that's what got them through. They were, they stayed, Mr. Martell is, begins the book without faith and finds it. Mrs. Martell has faith, loses it and refines it again. And, because of that, they're able to be resilient. They're able to keep going. And, you know, there's everything is stacked against them at multiple points in the book where you say to yourself or the story, they, they can't possibly pull this off. And yet their fortitude and their belief that they could get to a better life, they could get to freedom in the United States was just relentless and it drove them to make it. Um, Mrs. Martell in one of my favorite parts of the book has to escape Soviet occupied Germany and the courage that it had to have taken to run what effectively was a gauntlet to get to the other side with two little kids. It's, mm. It continues to dumbfound me, you know, and yeah. I hope people ask themselves the questions, would they, what would they have done? Would they have made the same choices? Would they have stayed resilient? Would they have believed that their dream was going to come true? Um, and that that is what I hope. Right. And it, it makes you think about like the things we face today. Are we willing to do what whatever kind of courageous task or act is required of us, you know, right. in order to make a difference or... Right. To have an impact on people's lives. So... When I wrote the book, um, I was trying to have an impact on the readers' lives. I was trying mm-hmm. to make them live the Martell's journey. Because in a sense, if you could get through it and see what happens to them, you realize that you can get through almost anything. Right. And that's that's what I want to impress upon people. Yeah, that's cool. So how do you feel your background in journalism and writing thrillers, um, how does that inform your historical fiction now that you're writing a completely different, well, I don't know if I should say completely different um, genre, because in some ways, you know, it's still is very thrilling. It's Mm -hmm. it's, uh, Uh, fast moving. 
But. Yeah, it's fast moving. That's sure. Even though they were crawling across Europe and a kind of started arriving, <laughs> um, it is a fast moving book. So right. the investigative journalism certainly gives me an instinct for what a story is. As I said, within an hour, I knew I was going to tell this story. And I knew right. I was going to dedicate, you know, two years of my life to researching it and doing it. Um, so investigative journalism has given me a nose for story and also uh, a sense of the right question to ask. You know, mm. uh, when you're talking to people, I'm more interested. Yes, I'm interested in the circumstances, but I'm interested in where they were on the emotional arc of their journey. And so I was always asking the brothers about that, or I was reading, um, you know, the transcripts of Adeline's interviews, looking for that and looking for how she was thinking and how he was thinking at various points. The suspense writing and the thrillers really has given me a strong sense of how to tell a story. Uh, mm -hmm. Working with Patterson has given me that as well. He's just an extraordinary storyteller. You know, he understands every facet of it. And that, those tactics, those techniques are how I tell historical stories. You know, I'm looking for stories that have action in them, of course. Um, the Martellus has that in spades, as well as a deep and morally complex sub-story, uh, which has to do with the Holocaust of bullets and what Mr. Martell is forced to do during the initial part of the Holocaust. Um, and dealing with that forced me to think about the story in a different way. Yes, I was, I was trying to tell people the more thrilling aspects of the story. I mean, being in battles where they had to avoid tanks firing and things like this, um, as well as to be willing to drill into their deep and not so deep past while they're on the journey. And that took, you know, a lot of storytelling for, I, for me, I've been doing this close to 30 years and the challenge of it was to tell the complex story while keeping the reader riveted to the page. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you've mentioned a couple times working with James Patterson. Tell me more about what that was like. Oh, it was great. Um, as I said, the first year, you know, I went to work with him. Originally, I thought, oh, I know a lot about commercial fiction writing. And I really mm -hmm. didn't until I started working with him. It's just the way he looked at things and thought about them um, were different. So, you know, the entire first year of working with him, I would turn in pages every couple of weeks on what we were working on. And then we would have a long discussion about it. And I would tell my wife, it was, it was a crash course, a master's level crash course in commercial fiction writing, as well as a tutorial in storytelling and how it works hmm. and how it functions. So it was almost like calling Yoda, you know, two times a month and then <laughs> learning how to be a Jedi writer. Right. And wow. uh, it was really cool. He is a, uh, a wonderful person. Um, very funny, very smart, very well read, reads constantly, mm -hmm. watches, consumes stories all the time. It's all about stories. Uh, and it's a lot of fun to work with him. 
That's cool. Mm-hmm. What an opportunity. Uh, uh, a miracle. Yeah. Absolute miracle. Right. So I, I have to bring up that your first historical novel, Beneath the Scarlet Sky, is now being made into a television series starring Tom Holland. Yeah, seven-part limited series with Tom attached. Unfortunately, we don't know, given all the delays, production delays that have occurred oh, in yeah. the pandemic, whether he's still going to be there. He wants to do it if the filming of uh, Beneath coincides with a gap, he's there. Uh, right. We don't know. So he loves this okay. story. He's, he's read it like four times and just adores it. So, Oh, that's awesome. I, I have a teenage daughter who loves Tom Holland, so she was very excited when I mentioned this to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but so you don't know when that will be happening. I know they're casting for the general right now, for general layers. Uh, and when they get that, they're going to go out for financing to the major streaming services. And that's mm-hmm. the last I heard, which was about a month ago. Okay. So as an author, what will your involvement be in that whole process? Um, Anything I, or no? <laughs> well, very little, to be honest. I, right. I do have um, the right to read the scripts and to comment on them, which I've done. Uh, they've mm-hmm. written a full pilot and they've written a Bible for, that controls the whole thing. Um, I loved what some of the, they did. I didn't like a couple of things they did. I told them, mm-hmm. that, you know, and they, they're very cool. They agreed to fix them. So that all worked. Good. Um, now it's just going to be getting the right cast together and the, and the right director, someone who has the sensibility of the themes of Beneath a Scarlet Sky. Uh, and there were a lot of them. There was faith also. There was music because it had such a, tremendous influence on Pino Lella's life. Um, mm. All these kinds of things and the power of love and what it can do and what it can't do. Um, mm. And they're very cognizant of that. And they're trying to stay true to those themes in the book. That's great. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So what are you writing now? Can you tell us about it? Yeah. Um, I am getting ready to go to Uganda. I've been obviously delayed I was supposed to be mm. there last June uh, to work. I'm going with the former commander of SEAL Team 6 and the former deputy assistant secretary of defense under General Mattis. And I'm going to try to bring to life the story of a boy and a girl, uh, Florence and Anthony. And Anthony is 13 when he is kidnapped and Florence is 11 or 12 when she's kidnapped. And Mm. they're taken prisoners and forced through this thing called the child's crucible, which the SEAL team commander will tell you is harsher than any SEAL team training. And many children died and they came out the other end, the fiercest combat warriors on earth. And um, they were held captive as soldiers by this messianic warlord named Joseph Coney. And, they meet each other about halfway through the ordeal, so roughly five years in, and they fall in love. And the power of love enables them to survive and eventually to escape and eventually to help the SEAL team commander and the former CIA officer to hunt Coney because Obama wanted him to, to end all child soldiering. So they were sent there after him, and that's how they met Anthony and Florence and that's how they came to tell me the story. 
Mm. Wow. So is that, um, that's not historical fiction. It's more of a... It it will be, it'll be, I'll bring it to life. And anytime you bring a story to life like this, there's some fictional aspects of it. I'm just sorry. Right, but it's it's it's, not that far back in history, right? No, it's not. It's 15 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm, but it meets all the criteria of the stories I'm interested in telling. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's inherently moving. It's 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 inspiring. You can't believe that anybody, much less two young kids, go through what they go through and come out the other side mentally healthy and remarkable people who have dedicated right. their lives to helping other child soldiers get out. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so this is a question I ask all my guests, and I think we kind of touched on it a little bit, but um, I I like to finish up with this question. So how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I think it helps a great deal. If you forget about history, if you don't know what happened before you, you're doomed to repeat it. And I know that's trite, but it's true. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think especially these kinds of stories. We're facing a difficult time in our country. We have been for the past 15 months. The whole world has. And to hear these kinds of stories just makes you understand we can survive this. We can get through this and we can stand up and we can thrive again. And I think it's important to understand that. Otherwise, you get blinders on and you want to be able to see the peripheral vision of things. And to me, history is peripheral vision. It's not behind us. It's beside us. It encases what happens now. Right. Yeah, that's so true. Okay. So what is the best way for listeners to follow you? Uh, They can follow me on Facebook, which is uh, Mark Sullivan author they can follow me on Twitter, which is Mark Sullivan at Mark Sullivan Books. Uh, I can't guarantee I'm on a lot. I'm not a big social media guy, uh, but mm-hmm. I do do it because people tell me it's important. Um, <laughs> I do answer every letter that's ever been sent to me, the good and the bad. Uh, oh, that's great. But yeah, you can reach me also through my website, which is uh, MarkSullivanBooks.com. Okay. Well, this has been a really great time. Thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Allison. It's been a real treat for me. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If this show is always a treat for you, will you please leave a star rating and review? That would really help other people find the podcast. And I would love for our reach to expand. Also, make sure you check out the show notes. If they're not available in whatever app you use to listen to podcasts, then just go to alisontreat.com slash blog to find the show notes for each episode. Um, that's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. Also, I would love it if you would join our Facebook group. If you're on Facebook, we have a group called Historical Fiction Unpacked podcast group, and we can interact in there. I love to hear from people who listen to the show. So join me there. As always, I'm going to leave you with a quote. Boris Becker said, I can't change history. I don't want to change history. I can only change the future. So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, and I will talk to you again next week. (laughs) 